Welcome to Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray that you are blessed by this message from Pastor John Roberts. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. We are looking at Ephesians. We spent, I don't know what, 50 minutes last week and never even got to verse 1. So we won't get finished with verse 1 tonight at all. But let's start. We'll just read verse 1 and get us at least into, I can say, I covered verse 1. Maybe not in its completeness, but I covered, I at least got into the, the epistle. Ephesians 1, 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. This is, well, first of all, um, just to give a a brief recap from last week, uh, the best or oldest copies, maybe not the best copies, but the oldest copies of the New Testament don't have in Ephesus in their transcript. And, and the, the codex. Um, and it's pretty well accepted by almost all theologians that this letter, because Paul had, had a whole series of churches in Asia Minor in this part of Greece that he ministered to, and this was the, they, they supposed that this was probably written as a circular letter. You send it to you know one group and they will copy it, send it to the next group. And, and the reason I think that's important is we want to understand that while whether it was written to the church at Ephesus, the church of Laodicea, whatever city, whatever group it was written to, it's also written to us. We can, we can very easily put in there um, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Indianapolis. It's applicable. In fact, when, when we get there, and who, who knows, I, I'm reading this, um, these commentaries by um, um, Martin Lloyd-Jones. You know, I, I mentioned Sunday. He, he um, taught from 1955 to 1963 every Sunday morning at Westminster Chapel on Ephesians. That encouraged me to quit being in a hurry. If you can take eight years as a pastor... <laughs> and preach once a week and never get through, you know, and, and, and just at that point get through Ephesians, then, you know, it's, um, and, and it's kind of like I know when, um, when I first went to Bible school, I mean, that was a big, big step. Gina and I were married. We had kids. I had to quit work. I mean, it's, that was a, it was a risky move. I was a little nervous, sweating a little bit. And it was, but there was also a sense of, <clears throat> do I have time to do this? And I had some friends who, well, I'm, I know I'm called to the ministry, but there's not time to go to Bible school. There's not time to go to seminary. I got to get it. Jesus is coming back. Well, we just had our 40th, was it 40th? I guess it was, 40th class reunion from Bible school, because it was 86, 96, 2006, 30th. So, you know, 30 years later, you know, a little over 30 years later, those people that didn't go get prepared, 
they it, it, it didn't help their ministry. So there is never, you know, we, we don't want to just loaf about, but time spent in preparation, time spent in deep looking at something is never wasted. And, and I know there's always this thing, and it's particularly now. I mean, I was joking about, about the Cubs and about, but I'm telling you, I look at the world situation I don't think we're long for this world. If, if I, you know, I've already told the Lord I want at least 15 more years in active ministry and then another five years of full retirement where I can go play with my grandkids or my great-grandkids maybe by that time. Uh, but if in 20 years from now I'm still around here, I'm, it's, I will be shocked. But while I think Jesus is about to come back, Till I hear that trumpet and head out through the roof, we got to occupy till he comes. And knowing the word is the key to doing all of this. So let's notice the first thing, or a few things. First of all, there, you know, with every book of the New, in particular the New Testament or even the Old Testament, Scholars want to argue, especially the textural criticists, I guess, however, the, the um, PhDs, the guys educated well beyond their intellect, um, they, they want to argue, well, who really wrote this? Because obviously it couldn't be whose name is on it. Well, some of the books, you know, Hebrews is one in particular, you might have an argument over, for one person over another, but this one is, it says first word. This is Paul. Um, but the first thing I want you to understand, and there's, there, there's, I'm, I'm pushing this a little bit, because Paul's Hebrew name was Saul. The Greek rendering of that was Paul. And Paul was a Jew who lived in Tarsus, and his family was wealthy enough, they bought Roman citizenship. Jews, actually Jews um, had a very preferred status in the Roman Empire mainly because they were good businessmen, and the Romans were not idiots. If you've got people who are, you know, they prosper in pretty much everything they put their hand to, and they make a lot of money, that raises a lot of taxes. So let's favor them. And, and a lot of Jews were favored, and, and Romans had no problem if you were not a natural, you know, from Rome. Uh, they had no problem you buying citizenship because it was a way to raise money. So Paul kind of lived in both worlds. He, he was a Jew, and in fact, he was a Pharisee. You know, he was a very strict Jew, very strict. Um, Gina and I were watching a, a TV program the other night, and one of the characters on it was a, um, was a doctor who was a Jew, and he um, had to come in on an emergency, and it was Sabbath, and he could not, um, he had to wait for somebody to walk up and push the button on the elevator. And he said, this is ridiculous. When I was at Johns Hopkins, they had uh, a Sabbath elevator that on the Sabbath, it ran and stopped at every floor so that observant Jews never had to push the button. Well, you know, in my mind, this, it's kind of like, that's just silly beyond belief. But the Pharisees were that strict or stricter. And that was Saul. He was a Jew and he was a very observant Jew. But at the same time, he also operated in the Roman world. 
And when he operated in the Roman world, he spoke Greek. He used his name Paul, and he was a maker of tents. He had a business, and he prospered. He, you know, the whole, most of his missionary journeys rarely did the churches support him to the point where he didn't work. He made tents um, most of the time he was out. You know, he, he was self-supporting a great deal of the time. But I want to look at this because there is a principle in the Bible where God loves to rename people. We saw it with Abraham. Abram became Abraham. Sarai became Sarah. Jacob became Israel, and it always signified a change of character also. Well, if we look at Saul to Paul, um, Saul literally means, the Hebrew word Saul means desired, which kind of fits, especially when you think of King Saul. He, the, the, the people desired a king. It, the, the root Hebrew root of that means to ask or to ask for. Well, they were bugging God. We want a king. Everybody else has got a king. They sound like a bunch of teenagers. Everybody's doing it. And God said, no, I don't want you to have a king. But everybody's doing it. Well, if everybody jumps off a bridge, you're going to jump off. Well, no, don't be silly, but everybody's doing it. They all got kings. We want a king. And finally, God said, okay, not going to work out. It's going to be a problem. You know, we, we scream about how high our taxes are, and to be honest with you, I think our taxes are way too high. But our taxes were nothing compared to what, I mean, these people didn't have much, and they still, Saul taxed them hard. And God said, if, you, if I do this, this guy's going to come in, and he's going to have a lot of requirements for you. You sure you want to do this? Oh, yes, because everybody else has one. we got to have one. Well, <clears throat> Saul, the, the apostle, Saul, um, had the same thing. He was, he was desired. He, in, in, in his character, he was desirous of living that holy life to the point where he committed to be a Pharisee. Pharisees judged their lives. They had something like 6,000 rules that they lived by. And, I mean, I, don't, I, I have a hard enough time having three or four. And I, even those, it's like, yeah, that's kind of more of a suggestion, you know. In fact, it's, Gina is world famous for, you know, occasionally going down the road saying, yeah, what's the speed limit? It's like, it's not a limit, it's a suggestion. And, and if, you've ever, if you've gotten out on 465, believe me, it is a suggestion because you drive the speed limit in the slow lane and you'll have people riding your bumper honking at you telling you you're number one all day because you are impeding traffic in the slow lane. But Paul, before he was converted, he had that desire. He had a root hard desire, I want to please God, to the point where he was willing to go kill people. He, he was the prosecuting attorney at Stephen's trial. But when he went to Damascus looking for Christians that he could, you know, bring a charge against, throw them in jail, hopefully, you know, uh, dispatch them so he didn't have to deal with them anymore. Jesus took that, in, that inert or, or inborn desire that, that Paul had to serve God, and he used it. I mean, he met him on the road, knocked him off his horse. I've, I've joked before, my dad, you know, I've heard the story. If you're dealing with a mule, you take a four-foot piece of two-by-four, hit him right square between the eyes and get his attention before you do anything else. Well, God knocked Saul 
off his horse. I mean, he, he arrested him. He knocked him down and said, why are you persecuting me? And Saul looked up at, you know, whatever was there, was it a bright light, whatever, and said, who are you? I'm not, I'm not persecuting you. And like, well, I'm Jesus, and you're, you're persecuting my church, which ought to tell us when Jesus looks at us, he doesn't see me. He sees himself. He sees, you know, he looks at us not only as a group, but also individually, and he sees himself. He, he does not tolerate. He is not happy. Uh, you know, I've said for years, I can take a lot of abuse. You go after my wife, my kids, and now my grandkids, I, I, I lose my, my religion. I get over in the flesh in a heartbeat. I, the fangs and the horns come out of my head, and the fangs come out of my teeth, and I'm ready to do battle. I can take a lot of stuff, but I can't take anybody attacking my family. Well, that's kind of how Jesus was towards Paul. But his, his, his um, Roman name, Paul, means small or little. Now, a lot of people have, and a lot of theologians have used this to say, well, he was short in stature. Well, he may have been. I don't know. I, you know, I have no idea what the man looked like. Uh, let's face it, everybody back then was short in stature compared to any of us. I think probably in the first century... Uh, Probably the average height of any male would have probably been 5'3", 5'4", because they didn't eat real well. You know, we're giants compared to what they are. But where, when I look at that, what I see is 1 Samuel fifteen seventeen, where Samuel, in fact, let's turn back there. Um, Samuel gave Saul some very strict instructions when he anointed him king. He said, Samuel, or, or Saul, here's the only thing you have to do. When God tells you to do something, don't deviate. Do what he says, when he says it, the way he says it. As long as you do that, you're okay. And he told him to, in, in um, the first part of, of, um, of 1 Samuel 15, he tells him, to, you know, go and take the Amalekites and, or Amalek, uh, the Amalekites, I guess how you pronounce it. And he said, you know, they have, um, they have tormented my people for a long time. It's time that they're going to reap what they sowed. And I want you to go in, I want you to kill everything. Every man, woman, child, burn their houses, kill their animals, I want nothing left alive. That's a pretty harsh treatment. In fact, to be honest with you, most Christians look at that and think, wow, where's God's grace? But you also have to remember, just a little side thought, when Joseph went into Egypt, the, the nation of, of Israel stayed in Egypt for over 400 years. And they stayed in captives and were slaves for one reason— God was still dealing with the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amalekites, all of the people in the promised land, to get them to turn back to him. He left his own chosen people in slavery for 400 years so he could deal with these people to come back with him. He did the same thing, you know, the story of, of Jonah. He did the same thing to Nineveh. 
Go preach to them. In fact, I think that's why Joseph or, or Jonah ran. And God said, no, you go preach repentance to these people. And when he did, what'd they do? They turned to God and they repented. Now, it didn't last forever because they, they came back and persecuted the, the nation of Israel pretty hard. But God told um, um, Samuel, God through Samuel told Saul very plainly, you go and, and you do this. But in verse um, 17, well, let's go back to verse 10. This is Samuel coming and dealing with Saul. He said, now the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I greatly regret that I have set Saul as king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel and he cried out to the Lord all night. Which that right there tells you the heart of a godly man or a godly woman. God says, I'm, I'm sick of this guy. And it's time for me to deal with them. And they hit their knees and say, oh, Lord, don't do this, please. They, they intercede for someone who's about to get judged. Verse 12 says, so when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel, and indeed he set up a monument for himself. Now, that's pretty telling right there. You know, we, we love to name buildings after people. We love to name monuments. You know, we were just talking about the new bridge in Louisville. The old one's named the Kennedy. I can't remember what the new one is named. But we, we honor usually the dead. But it would be, you know, we've, we've, you go to Washington, D.C. I love going to that city. There are all kinds of memorials there. But it would be the height of arrogance for President Obama or any president to say, well, you know, I've been a really good president here the last seven years, you know, less 100 days. So I'm going to build a memorial to myself out on the mall. I have a feeling even his greatest supporters would say, yeah, I think that might be a step too far. You're, you know, that, that's just demonstrating a little bit of arrogance. But that's exactly what Saul did. He built himself a monument. I mean, he has really got himself, you know, he's got a case of the big heads. He's been reading his, his um, press clippings. And it says, and he has gone around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. He's also deceived. He's not only arrogant, he's deceived. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Samuel said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. Notice, this is the same excuse that Adam gave when they, when they fell in Genesis 3. Well, God, it wasn't me. It was that woman you gave me. Well, Saul's looking at Samuel and said, well, Samuel, it wasn't me. It was the people. They forced my hand. No, it was Saul. He was right in there with them. And now I'm not saying that the, the people might not have said, well, let's go do this. But Saul's the king. Samuel told him quite plainly, this is what God wants. Kill them all. He should have killed them all. Verse 16, then Samuel said to Saul, be quiet. Better translation, shut up. And I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, speak on. Uh, 
brave man, I would have said, oh, please don't. Not if you just told me to shut up. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear bad news. So Samuel said, and this is where we get to, to Paul being mean, meaning small or little. When you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel and did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? That was the key to King Saul being able to function as king is realizing I'm not king because I'm some, something else. And I'll be honest with you, every human being has this temptation, some more than others, uh, especially if God uses you in any way, you're going to have the temptation to think, yeah, I'm pretty good. You know, I got this down. No, you don't have anything down. Apart from the anointing of, of Jesus in your life, none of it's going to work. None of it. it it's, it's all him. In fact, <coughs> if you go back to Ephesians 1.1, Paul said, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul's very clear from the get-go. First of all, my calling is from God. And all of this, everything I'm about to write you, everything I've ever done, it's all by the will of God. This is not about me. And Paul had the good sense, and I think that's part of the reason that God chose Paul, was because he had already demonstrated at least to a degree. I mean, if you're a Pharisee, you are one disciplined person. You got over 6,000 rules. You got some discipline in your life. If you're, you're not going to live them. Nobody, Paul said that in Romans. Nobody's been justified by the law. You can have all your rules. You can justify yourself. But before God, you're, you're not living all of them out. If, for one thing, that's why Jesus said in the, in the Gospels, and it shocked the hearers. He said, you know, it's, it says in, in the commandments to um, not commit adultery. But I'm telling you, if you've looked on a woman with lust... You've already committed adultery. It wasn't just doing the act. It was, do you want to do the act? If you want to, it's just, you might as well go ahead and do it. You're just as guilty. Now, you know, don't use that as an excuse to go out and commit adultery. Well, I thought about it. I might as well do it. Your, your spouse is probably not going to accept that excuse. But, but Jesus was trying to impart to them or, or impress them that it's a hard issue. And even the Pharisees... They, they had, their hearts were not right. That's why God had to confront Paul. But Paul stayed little. He stayed small in his own mind. He knew who he was and where he was. Now, and, and I'm not going to go there. I don't, don't remember exactly where it is. But when in the letter to the Corinthians, Paul talks about God's given him a... Uh, um, a um, thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. The, the, first of all, let me be clear, that was not an Asian eye disease like a lot of theologians will tell you. It was everywhere the Bible, and in particular in the Old Testament, where it uses that term thorn, of, of thorn in the flesh, it's talking about a people that persecute Israel. So, and, and Paul did have persecution. He had a group of people that followed him everywhere he went called the Judaizers. They would just wait till he left the church because he never, I think uh, Ephesians was one of the places he stayed the longest. He was only there two years. 
uh, the first time. Now he visited later on. But um, he, um, they would come along and say, you know, Brother Paul, he preaches grace, and that's right. But you need to realize you also need to follow the law. You need to become a Jew. And they wanted to make all these Gentiles become Jews. And they persecuted Paul everywhere he went. Uh, that was his thorn in the flesh. But he says in there, the reason he was given that was so that he wouldn't be exalted above measure because he had such a revelation. He had been to heaven. I mean, God didn't just come visit him on the Damascus Road. Later on, God physically transported him to heaven and took him through Bible school face to face. Now, I, I counted, Gina and I have talked about this many times, I counted an unbelievable privilege that I got to go to Rama and sit under the ministry of Kenneth E. Hagan. That man changed my life. And he just had so much wisdom. And, and basically it was, he just always went back to the word. But that would pale in comparison to having Jesus sit and teach you face to face. And that's what Paul had. But Paul never got the big head. He never got to the sense of, hey, I'm Paul. You need to just shut up and listen to me because I know more than you. Now, I know that thought probably went through his head at times, but you never see it expressed. He was patient. He, he instructed and taught and instructed and taught. And, and he, was, he, didn't, he knew his limitations. Amen? That's the key for us also. Now, the second part, um, and this is Mounts' translation. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. It wasn't just the fact that Paul was a man. Paul also had a calling. Now, there are, in, in one sense, Paul tells us in, in his writings, we're all called, we'll look here in a little while, we are all called to the ministry of reconciliation. We are all called to be ministers of the gospel. But there is a difference. Um, there's also the fivefold ministry, the prophet, apostle. Uh, pastor, teacher, and evangelist. They are special, and then they're not special callings in the sense that they're special people, but they're a special anointing to do a function. And then there's, there's a, the, the, even with that, there, are, there were apostles. I mean, there are still present-day apostles. Uh, I knew a guy, and I can't think of his name now. It's been years since I've talked to him. Uh, but he was an apostle. His ministry... He knew how to play the guitar, sang, yeah, sort of, all right. And he, he didn't hurt your ears when he sang. But he felt called to Mexico, central Mexico. And he went to, to little towns. Um, Ciudad Guzman was the place, first place he went. And he just went out on a street corner, started playing his guitar, started singing gospel songs, worship songs. And a lady came by and started listening. He started preaching. She got saved. He went to her house and started a church in her house. And after four or five years, that church had grown to, I don't know, several hundred people. He installed a pastor and said, okay, now I'm going to train you to pastor this church and I'm gone. And he lived in, in that city and he went to another city, sat down on a street corner, started strumming his guitar, singing, preached, waited, got somebody saved, went to their house and started a new church. He had done that half a dozen times over a 10-year period. That's an apostle. 
That's the work of an apostle, to go and found churches. But Paul was an apostle with a slightly different uh, anointing because Paul was not only called to start churches, he was called to write scripture. Now, I will agree with some of the mainline denominations. That role has ended. No one, you know, the, 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 the codex, the canon of the scripture is closed. With, with the small exception that the book of Acts will never be closed. We are writing the book of Acts in our own lives today. But my actions are not, um, they're not worthy of being pinned and used as a reference that this is the, a thus saith the Lord. You know, the, 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 the Bible is closed. Those apostles dead and gone and that anointing is gone no one is writing scripture that's why when you read through um the the epistles and it talks about prophesying in particular in first corinthians it says you know let one prophesy and let the others judge well i don't judge the word the word judges me but if someone prophesies and said this is what the lord says i'm called to judge it i'm called to say Okay, let's see how that lines up with the word. Let's see if, it, if it's a personal prophecy, I'm called to say, okay, how does that line up with God, what God's already told me I should be doing? And if it doesn't, if, if someone prophesies something over me and God hasn't already been dealing with me about it, it goes up on a shelf. They just had too much pizza. And I'm going to let it sit there until God deals with me about it. Amen? But... but Paul was called, he was called directly by, and here again, this is Christ Jesus. The order, it's, it's not an absolute rule, but the order of that, whether it's Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus, does make a difference. This is emphasizing the deity. It was God who called um, um, Paul. And I will be honest with you, if you feel like you have a call on your life, you better make sure you're called. Because if you are called, you will never be satisfied until you step into the call. If you're not called and you go just because, you know, and I'll be honest with you, there are, when I look at, and, and I'm not bad-mouthing the Catholic Church, but they have just come through a um, period of time where, you know, they had a lot of uh, pedophiles that were in the priesthood. The reason those men went into the priesthood this is my opinion, but I think I really have, have the mind of the Lord on it, was they thought if they went into the priesthood, they could control their urges by dedicating their life to God. Well, going into the ministry doesn't help you conquer your flesh. In fact, if anything, it's going to put you under a lot of pressure. And if, you, if you're not called, your flesh is probably going to rise up and do a lot of things. Um, being in the ministry, I've just talking to my son this week, and uh, we we hadn't heard from him for a couple of weeks, and that's unusual for him. And when he called, I said, "How how are things going?" He said, "Well, you know, I I got home the other night and I started to get jealous because I saw a guy coming out of my house." And he said, and "Then I realized it was me. I met myself coming and going." And you know, he just he he's just he's started into the ministry and. He is just swamped with work. And I said, that's impossible because, you know, I know how pastors, what the, a pastoral job is like. You only preach twice a week. 
And the rest of the time, you're just out on the golf course playing golf. Isn't that how it works? And, you know, because I've had people tell me that, you know, yeah, being a pastor, it's kind of like people used to criticize, yeah, it's easy to teach, you know, be a teacher. You get your whole summers off. And I always had the same answer. If it's that easy, why don't you come jump on this gravy train? You know, and they'd say, well, you know, I don't know that I want. I said, yeah, I've got 35 in my classroom just like your child. And you could just see there, there was a little little look of fright came across 35 just like my kid. Wow. No, don't thank you. Well, it's the calling. If you're called, you, your calling will drive you. If you're not, stay away. But it's to the saints in Ephesus and the faithful in Christ Jesus. Um, I want to take a look, and we're, we're not even going to get through the first one tonight. Um, there is a... Um, Paul... Well, let's drop down to in the first chapter. Paul has an overall theme for this whole book. And we see it in the in the from Ephesians 1 15 through 19 um, this is this is the elevated theology of Paul this is where he wants this church to go he wants these Christians this is his prayer for them and it's a God inspired prayer and this is part of the reason I said you know sometimes we need to realize that that in Ephesus probably wasn't in the original letter because it's, this is written to me. There are a couple of prayers that, that are recorded. They're God-inspired prayers, and we can very easily, in fact, you should learn these prayers and insert your name into them and make it personal and pray these prayers over yourself. But this is Paul's overarching. This is what he wants for us. In verse 15 of Ephesians 1, he says, Therefore, I also, after I had heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. What is it that he's, he's asking God? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. That is the overall call that Paul has for all Christians. I want you to have a spirit of wisdom and revelation. You have to have a revelation in, in the knowledge of who in him means God the Father, God the Son. I want you to know, not just know in the sense that, you know, I know a little bit about Winston Churchill. I know, um, you know, you can name any historical figure. I know them because I've read about them. But I don't know them really. They're not. I know my wife. I know my kids. Now, even my kids, I don't know them completely. I don't know my wife completely. Uh, there are, you know, I, I know she doesn't know me because I do things every once in a while. She looks at me like, "Wow, who are you? We've been married 35 years. I've never seen that that come out of you." Well, that's because we're not God. But Paul's saying, "I want you to have a revelation. Notice how, what what this means." Verse 18, that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened, that you might know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in us, in the saints, in me, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. 
Now, I, I said earlier, you know, I'm, I'm pretty much convinced that we're close to the return of Christ. And I look at, you know, especially because of the political season, I look at my country and I tremble. I, I, it's like I don't, I'm not recognizing things. And yet I look at Paul. Paul was in Ephesus. Ephesus was, you know, it, it's funny. When I used to fellowship with a lot of different pastors from different cities, every pastor I met would tell me, well, our city is the capital of witchcraft for the country. You know, or, or, or my city has, you know, we're, we, we have one of the worst epidemics of heroin or drug addiction or whatever the, the addiction of, you know, was at the time. And it's like, there can all, there can't, not every little city can be the capital of witchcraft for the whole country. Well, we have a lot of problems in our country. And, and to be honest with you, I think part of the problem is the church hasn't been the church. But Paul went to a, to a, a city. In fact, go over to Acts chapter 19. I want us to look at his, the first time he came to Ephesus. Um, he came to a city that was pretty much totally pagan. They had a, a temple to Diana where their entire um, 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 system of worship consisted of having temple prostitutes, both male and female. In Ephesus, one of the reasons Paul deals later on about marriage is marriage was for, um, to a typical Ephesian couple, marriage was simply a convenience for procreation, but it had nothing to do with recreation. When you wanted to recreate around sex, you went to the temple. You got drunk, you had a feast, and you went and found a temple prostitute and had sex with the temple prostitute, both men and women. Well, that's, that's you know, we, we have some areas in our country that come close to that, but nothing really close. <laughs> I mean, we've got some problems. But, and and they, drugs were involved, hallucinogenics were involved. You know, the, thinking that we're the only culture that's ever had a problem with addiction, they had a big problem with addiction. Alcohol primarily, because that one was easy. You just had to ferment grapes. But, you know, they, they had a lot of that. But they had also, you know, psychedelic drugs, you know, mushrooms. They had all kinds of things that would trip you out. This is where Paul starts, and yet he's looking at this people, these people and saying, look, there's power available. There's power in Jesus to change your culture. There in, in Acts 19, let's start in verse 1. It says, And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? These were disciples of John the Baptist. And so they said to him, We've not even so much as heard whether there is a Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into, then, into what then were you baptized? And they said, Well, into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When these disciples heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon, upon them. They spoke with tongues and they prophesied. They got born again under Paul's ministry. 
Before, they, they had a baptism of repentance. They knew there was a Messiah coming, but they really didn't know much. And then verse 7, it says, Now the men were about 12 in all. Twelve men. That was the church at Ephesus when Paul got there. And it says, And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Paul started with 12 men. And he, and he took, you know, for three months, he reached out to the Jewish community in Ephesus. And they totally rejected him. And after that three months, it says that he separated himself. He took those 12 men and he said, okay, they've hardened themselves. And to be honest with you, people were going to go one way or the other. You preach the gospel to them, they're either going to, you know, it's the old thing. You can set out um, a mud brick and a piece of wax and the same sun will harden the brick that melts the wax. It all comes down to their, the condition of their heart. And the Jews that Paul was preaching to, it hardened their hearts. They got more and more hostile towards the gospel. The people who received it, their hearts melted. They got saved. But at some point, Paul said, these guys are not going to receive. We need to remove ourselves. That is the first thing going back to Ephesians 1.1. It says there that in the second part of that verse, it says this letter is to the saints. Now, we read earlier in Paul's prayer, that was a soaring height. This is what Paul ultimately wants. He wants us to have a revelation of Christ. But he starts out by giving us the irreducible qualities of a Christian. If, if you boil it down to... What does it take to be a Christian? Paul gives us three things. And we're going to look at it, and I'm not going to get near as far into it as I thought I would. But we're going to look at the three things. The first one is we're saints. We're separated. In the same way that Paul took those 12 men after three months, and there may have been more after three months, but he pulled them out and separated them. God has, when he says this is to the saints, literally that word saint means we are separated. We are a holy nation. We are a, a, a um, uh, 1 Peter 2, 9. We're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. That's what it means to be a saint. And, and despite what, you know, and I'm not down on the Catholic Church. Well, I am a little bit. You know, they, they want to designate, uh, they just... Um, Oh, I forgot the term. Sanctified, um, canonized, uh, Mother Teresa. You know, in, in their um, theology, if they can attribute two miracles and a whole body of work, then after you are dead, then they will recognize you and canonize you and name you a saint. Well, we should... Um, recognize and give honor to where honors due to people that accomplish a lot in the church. 
I, I, I've said it about Brother Hagen. I have the same um, respect for Billy Graham. There are, you know, a dozen, maybe a few more men and women that I know of their ministry. And I kind of got them on a, on a pedestal, not that I think they're perfect, but they accomplished some things. They, they, they made an obvious impact in the world. But that doesn't make them more of a Christian than I am. We are all, this letter says that we are all set apart. That is the first thing when, when, when 1 Peter 2, 9, when Peter says we're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. He's talking about the least Christian, the person who thinks I'm just barely going to get into heaven. <laughs> I'm just hoping I can, you know, that when I die or Jesus comes back, I make it. I'm going to get there and I, if I have a crown, that'll be great, but I'm certainly not going to have any rewards. I'm just getting in by the skin of my teeth. You're still getting in. God has set you apart. In fact, uh, in Galatians 1, Paul also wrote, and, and it's a similar thing. He says, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age. That's what it means to be a saint. We have been delivered from this present evil age. We are no longer subject, he said it in, in, in Romans, Sin shall not have dominion over you. We are not subject to the enemy. We are not subject to, to the world. Uh, John 15, 18 and 19, this is Jesus' words to his disciples, but it also applies to us. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now, people will say they tolerate Christians, but you can look at the political atmosphere of this day. No one will criticize Muslims. Very few people will criticize any of the New Age religions, you know, witches, warlocks, I don't know, all of the... You, you've got people that, you know, they literally, they'll, they'll, they'll wear a crystal around their neck, they'll have one in each pocket, they'll put a crystal in their shoes because they want that positive energy. And nobody, well, I do, but most people don't look at them and think, there's a nut. I'm, I'm, I really worry about their sanity. But nobody has a problem in our nation anymore or anywhere in the, around the world, to be honest with you, about criticizing and condemning Christians. We are, the, we are one of the very few groups that everybody is ready to condemn Christians. Why? Because we are not of this world. And because we're not of this world, they hate us. We have been separated. It's going to bring... Um, um, persecution it's and to be honest with you the closer we get to the day of Christ uh, the worse the persecution will get but to be honest with you I just read a, an article somewhere about um, Aleppo is where this big battle in Syria is taking place where you know the Russians and the um, the um, President Assad 
the Syrian president are trying to wipe out the people that are opposing him. And there was a group of Christian ministers there with some of their families who, when, when this final big push started a few weeks ago, their, their minister or whoever was in charge of their ministry said, you all need to leave. And they said, no, these people in this city need us. People are dying by the thousands and they need us here. Well, ISIS, when they moved in, they captured 11 of them. They either beheaded them or, or, or crucified them. I mean, literally, they nailed them up on trees or on telephone poles and crucified them. They were able to keep some of them alive for two or three days. They took a 12-year-old boy and said, we will let you live if you will renounce Christ. And he said, no, I'm a disciple of Christ. And while he's praying and looking to heaven and rejoicing and singing, they cut his head off. I mean, 11 people were either crucified or beheaded, and every one of them died rejoicing. And the thing that, is, that astounded me is at the end of this article, this man that, that was in charge of this mission who did leave, he's crying. But he said, the great thing we're seeing Muslims get born again like crazy in Aleppo. They're seeing this witness. These Christians are being martyred before their eyes, but their witness is so strong that Muslims are converting to Christianity when they've never been open to it before. ISIS saying, if you convert, you're dead. And they're saying, I don't care. I just saw God in these people. In fact, they had one guy that he went to a, a, a refugee camp in um, um, Jordan that had Syrian refugees in it. And he went with the sole purpose of killing the Christians because he knew of some Christians that were there. And he got there and when he got into and, and was ready to get a weapon and start shooting these Christians in their, in their service, he couldn't pull out his weapon. God arrested him and he went home and, and thought, what happened? And went back the next day and said, I don't understand. I came here to kill you and I physically could not pull out my gun. What happened? And they sat down and said, well, brother, that's just Jesus. He just arrested you and he loves you. And they, he ended up getting born again. And he's one of their greatest evangelists today. He's going through the rest of the camp with the threat of death, evangelizing and telling people Jesus is real. Well, we haven't, I mean, when, you know, there, there's this thing, you know, about um, there's, there's third world problems and there's first world problems. When you listen to, you go on Facebook and listen to the problems people have in their lives, and some of them have some pretty deep problems. But, you know, uh, I listened to some of the kids when I taught in the inner city, and they considered themselves poor because they only had a 40-inch flat screen TV on their wall. Well, when, when, when you're poor or judged poor because they have to drive a 10-year-old car or they, they don't have a, you know, a 60 or a 70-inch flat screen, you don't have a real problem. I mean, you know, I, I, some of these kids, I told them, I said, I would love to drop you in the middle of some of these villages in Africa or, or in Asia or in South America. You wouldn't survive a day. 
you would be begging to come back to this horrible existence that you have here. And some of them, I'm not discounting, some of them had some really horrible problems. They had parents that were drug addicts. They had gangs that were pressuring them to get into the gang. They had violence surrounded them. But most of the problems that we face, most of the persecution, in fact, I had one, one pair of kids that um, came to me because they knew I was a Christian and they, they were, little girl was crying. She said, Mr. Roberts, we're being persecuted at lunch. And I said, really, what happened? Well, so-and-so wadded up their crackers and threw them at us. <laughs> I, had to, I had to bite my lip. It's like, wow, if that's the worst persecution you're getting, you know, just rejoice. It can get worse and it may. But, you know, it, it's going to happen. But we're separated. Very familiar scripture, and I, I'm going to finish up real quick with this. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We got separated when we got born again. To be a Christian is to be a saint. God looks at you and says, you are different from the world. Because I made you different. Not because you're, you're, you're a, um, um, you did anything great. Not because you, you're such a, you know, handsome, beautiful person, but because of my work in you. Uh, and let me just, um, let me just hit a few verses because Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that your temple or your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? That's part of the way that we are separated. Paul likened us to the temple that was at um, 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 Jerusalem. And in fact, I've said this before, the reason, you know, you could go and look at all the conflicts that happened in the Middle East, they're all summed up in, in 1 Kings 8 and 1 Kings 9. 1 Kings 8, 27 through 29, this was during the dedication of Solomon's temple. He says, but God, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Question. Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. Solomon acknowledges this is a temple and it's set apart by God. But this thing, God, you can't put God in the temple. You can't, you know, don't put God in the box. He's not in the ark. It's his presence is above the ark and his anointing is above the ark. But this is not part, this is not just God. But verse 28 says, Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you today, that your eyes may be opened toward this temple night and day, toward the place of which you said. This is what God said of the temple mount in Jerusalem, where all the conflict is over right now. He said, My name shall be there that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes towards this place. God said, this is the one spot I pick. You know, if you've ever watched Big Bang Theory on TV, you know, um, Sheldon has his spot. Don't sit in my spot. Well, this is God's spot. This is where God said, this is where my name is going. 1 Kings 9.3 said this, the same thing. He said, I'll go to the end of the verse. He said, I have... Con Excuse me. I have consecrated this house, which you have built to put my name there forever. And my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. When Jesus comes back, 
after the end of the tribulation period when you know the, the angels open the bottomless pit they throw the devil in there and bind him for a thousand years you know there is no evil the curse of the fall has been eradicated we're going to go into a thousand year millennial reign jesus is going to have his throne in jerusalem on that spot well that is considered a holy place it's a separated place no less are we separated no less are we holy to god and again it's not because we're something special it's because of what God did. It's because of the blood of Jesus. But it doesn't make it any less real. And, and, and the great part in where you really need to remind yourself of this is when you have fallen, when you're in the pig pen, and you're, you know, you got the mully grubs, and the devil's just beating the tar out of you, and you think, yeah, I couldn't be a Christian. Lord, Christians don't have those thoughts. If you've ever had that thought, that right there, yes, they do. No matter what you were thinking, Christians have those thoughts. There, there, is no, there is no we live a perfect life. We are perfect because he made us perfect, but we lead imperfect lives even as perfect creatures inside a flesh body. We still have a flesh to contend with, and we don't live perfectly but God looks at us and says yeah you're set apart you're holy you're mine you know it's the same way every mother you know my son-in-law Matt has gotten in trouble he said every baby newborn baby's ugly well, you don't want to tell a newborn you know a, a, a new mother that her baby's ugly but I almost have to agree with him brand new babies just usually don't look real great they're splotchy they've got cone heads the, you know but I guarantee you that mama looks at that baby and that's the most beautiful creature that's ever existed on the face of the earth because that's hers. Well, God looks at us and says, you are beautiful. You are set apart. You are my holy creation. We are the saints that Paul's writing to. Thank you so much for joining us. If this message has blessed you today, we invite you to visit us in person at Faith Community Church or online at FCCIndianapolis.com. 